It is Tuesday, August 10th here at Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaap. With me today is a special guest. You know him as the editor-in-chief at FanDuel and Number Fire. He is the host of the award-winning Late Round Podcast. He is at Late Round QB on Twitter. He's a participant in the Draft Sharks Invitational. Each of the first two years is already drafted there. And he's making a return visit to the Draft Sharks Podcast today. JJ Zacharyson, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, you know, last year in that Draft Sharks Invitational, I uh, had Saquon in the first round, so that kind of went downhill. I even hit on some, you know, I had Antonio Gibson and Deontay Johnson and just didn't work out. And then this year I drew the 101, which I feel like was you guys saying, look, we get it. We get it. You know, it was a, it was a tough draw last year, uh, but it was a tough room once again. I mean, it's always always a tough time. Yeah, you're welcome for the gift. But I, obviously you landing at 101 after Barkley is just it's evidence that no matter how much math is involved, there are still fantasy gods that control yes. this whole thing. Exactly. Exactly. JJ, I mean, of course, always does terrific work. I- I've been enjoying some of your podcasts lately, focusing on how to find breakout players at various positions, especially the running back episode, which is something we're you know always looking for in those later rounds, especially now that we have wide receivers getting pushed up the board in some yes. of these best ball drafts. I guess before we get to, we're, we're going to go through a, a position by position kind of general draft plan for this year, but is there any particular finding that you want people to take away from those shows? Yeah, you know, there were, I would say probably the more interesting thing that I found, and this really goes across all positions, is that we're better than we think at uh, predicting how these situations are going to unfold. And what I mean by that is, if you look at like middle round wide receivers, middle round running backs, uh, and then tight ends to a certain degree as well, uh, you want the first wide receiver on his team uh, by ADP. You want to draft that player. So what I'm saying here is someone like, Devontae Smith, right? He's the first wide receiver from the Eagles that's being drafted by ADP. You want the players who are being elevated like that. One of the craziest findings, which I've dubbed the ambiguous RB1 theory, which is probably the dumbest name in the history of fantasy football. Uh, But basically what I found was we don't have a ton of instances where this happens. It happens maybe twice a year. Uh, But essentially, when you have two middle round running backs, and I'm looking at rounds six through nine, when you have two middle round running backs that are coming from the same team, a lot of times it's our inclination to say, oh, I'll get the cheaper guy. Uh, I'll just get the one who's being drafted second because he's a bigger value. But historically, the breakout rates of the RB1s on those teams has been incredibly good. I, I mean, it's it was probably the best subset that I could find when looking at these breakout players uh, by ADP were, were the guys who were the RB1s on their own team with an RB2 also being drafted relatively close to them so you know you look this season it's you know Trey Sermon versus Raheem Mostert it's Travis Etienne versus James Robinson and it's a reason why I'm more bullish on those rookie running backs you know of course you know they're being drafted in the middle rounds for a reason and you know I I think the the main reason why we see that happen uh, is because it's a situation where you know you can look at Michael Carter right where he's the RB1 on his team he's being drafted in the middle rounds there's no running back from the Jets that's being drafted near him Sure, you would want that RB1 uh, from an ADP perspective, what we've seen historically. Uh, But the reason why I think the hit rates are so much higher when there's an RB2 from that same team being also drafted in the middle rounds uh, is because we're clearly drafting based on like situation, right? And so we're saying, 
oh, this 49ers backfield, we know fantasy points are going to be produced there. We just don't know which running back we're supposed to choose. This, this Jacksonville backfield is kind of attractive because of what they're doing in Jacksonville general, but we don't know which running back to choose from. Well, the RB1 is emerging more. And so since we know the situations are pretty good, when the RB1 does emerge, then he breaks out in a big way. So I've been targeting those running backs a little bit more than usual this year. Obviously, when you're trying to give clarity, you want to call something ambiguous from the start, which helps people understand it, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. 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 <laughs> the difference between the San Francisco situation, Jacksonville situation, and say Michael Carter with the Jets or um, uh, other similar backfields, maybe Atlanta with Mike Davis, is right. that they're it's not so much drafting a good situation, but you're saying somebody's going to lead the backfield. I guess it's Michael Carter or I guess it's Mike Davis, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of the reason why we see the running back dead zone exist and, and, and show the data that it shows each and every year is that we have all these running backs being drafted early. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, we, we hit this wall where it's very clear there's no more workhorse running backs that, that are being drafted. But because of supply and demand, we're forcing ourselves or, or the market is forcing our, themselves to draft a player like Mike Davis or even like, look, I don't mind Miles Gaskin. I just took him in a draft, but like Miles Gaskin is sort of in that same bucket where we have to do a little bit more projecting uh, in order to, to say, yeah, this guy's going to be a workhorse. And some of those running backs do end up panning out, but a lot of it is this like this forced attitude towards the, these, these RB twos or we're just assuming will be RB ones because of lack of competition. But at the end of the day, I mean, running back talent may not matter in real football and who knows, you know, you, you can talk about the, the, the running back value debate all day long. Uh, but at the end of the day, we still want talented running backs because coaches see them as talented and then they get the ball a lot more. Right. And so mm -hmm. that's just one of the reasons why I think we see what we see in the data where we have like a, a Mike Davis situation where, yeah, he's the only back there. I understand why he has the ADP that he has, but there's still a lot of red flags there based on historical ADP and based on the fact that, you know, he's a 28 year old journeyman running back. That, that's really, I, I think that nails it is that, that you're looking more at, at situation with those more ambiguous backfields and saying, this is a good situation. They're just being uh, drafted later because they're eating at each other's carries as opposed to this guy's being drafted later, despite, you know, having everything right now or looking like he's having everything. Uh, the reason why we're avoiding them generally, we should avoid them is just because they're likely not going to be that good. Well, you heard it. JJ said Kadri Allison sucks, so you shouldn't be drafting him. Like, this is the only running back in Atlanta. Hey, I'm a I'm a pit, I'm a pit grad. Olson has a Ol Olson has a special place in my heart. But yeah, I mean, he's not that great. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to more of the running back stuff as we get to that position. But I do want to go position by position. I mean, you know, you still call yourself late round QB on Twitter, so I feel like we should start at quarterback. When are you targeting that position? And before we get into it. I think that we're looking at this more from a roster management standpoint, and we're getting into the time of year where we're all shifting from more of a best ball focus into the lineups that we're actually going to be setting week to week. So with, with that in mind, at what point in the draft are you really targeting quarterback this year? Yeah. So, you know, historically, you know, with the late round quarterback strategy and uh, the way that the market sort of looked, it's it's been a, a go big or go home sort of look for me where I actually could understand back in like 2015, 2016 at like the peak of the late round QB strategy. I could understand people going after the QB two or something like that more than middle round quarterbacks. Middle round quarterbacks historically uh, have been really, really bad bets. And then last season we saw this this switch where the market seemed to value the quarterback position properly, right? They, they looked mm -hmm. at the quarterback position and said, we understand that that rushing and the rushing component matters a lot at the position. So therefore, you know, I'm going to be drafting them that way. And so you looked at the market and it was, it looked going into the season 
like one of the most efficient quarterback markets, at least since I started analyzing the stuff that I'd seen. And then if you look at what happened, if you look at top 24 quarterbacks uh, over the last decade and look at the R squared, so the correlation between where they were being drafted and how many points they scored. I mean, we had seasons in like 2015 and 2017 and such where the, the, the R squared was zero. There was no correlation between where a top 24 quarterback was being drafted and how many fantasy points that quarterback ended up scoring. Last season, though, we saw a really strong correlation. And a lot of that mm -hmm. has to do with the rushing component that only a, a portion of these quarterbacks are really able to give you. I mean, eventually we're going to reach a point, especially with the way that uh, teams are looking at college quarterbacks and the, the quarterbacks that are that are coming up through the through systems now. Uh, we're going to get to a point where we're going to have, you know, 14 or 15 mobile quarterbacks that can do a lot with their arm as well, where we're going to go back and revert back to a very clear and obvious late round quarterback strategy. And, and maybe that happens even next year. If both Justin Fields and Trey Lance hits, if Trevor Lawrence hits, then all of a sudden you have 12 guys that you're going to feel comfortable with drafting uh, no matter what, and people won't be reaching for quarterbacks. But right now where it stands, you know, my overall strategy is to say, Let's see where this top tier dra uh, drops to. Uh, and if they drop to a place in the draft that I feel comfortable enough, you know, I'll snag one of the top tier guys. Uh, hopefully, you know, I'm usually not the first guy to take a quarterback in my draft just because you run the risk of, of devaluing that pick if everyone starts waiting on the position. But then after that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking for guys that have that mobility. You know, Tom Brady is someone who's the quintessential pa uh, pocket passer. He had the third highest touchdown rate of his career last year. He threw 40 touchdowns. And he was the QB 10, QB 11 in points per game. I mean, what does that tell you? It tells you how important uh, rushing is at the quarterback position. So I'm open to those top elite guys fall, you know, drafting them when they fall, which is something that you know I, I was sort of into last year, but hadn't been into, obviously, in the eight years prior to that. But you know, this season, I'm open to getting one of those guys. And then I, I kind of see these like little pockets that I'm attacking. You know, I, I think Russell Wilson might be at the end of that tier. We can talk about that in a sec, too. Um, but then, you know, I'll go after like a Ryan Tannehill who still has that, that mm -hmm. rushing juice a little bit. And then if I'm not able to get a guy like Tannehill, I'm throwing my darts at Trey Lance and Justin Fields and, and hoping that, you know, one of them, uh, is able to start early, but also, you know, I, I, I do have a, a strong belief that they're going to, uh, you know, add a lot of points on the ground. Uh, you know, Justin Fields running that four, 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 40 at his pro day, Trey Lance with the, the rushing uh, production that he had in college. I think we can feel confident they're going to at least give you that baseline. And then you have to ask yourself what if they're good passers? Like, what if they're reasonable passers? I mean, we saw Jalen Hurts last year be a mid-range QB1 while having some of the worst pocket uh, numbers or clean pocket numbers in the league. Um, and so I'm not that concerned about the passing numbers. It's all about the rushing juice. And I think Trey Lance and Justin Fields both bring that. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It took so long for people to realize how important QB rushing was to the fantasy numbers. And now we're almost to the point where uh, a guy like, Dak Prescott is not a plus rushing quarterback, but he's like what you're going to need to do yeah. to be starter level a quarterback. You know, never mind the the upside for his passing at this point, but we're getting to the point where you have to be at least Daniel Jones rushing to be worth drafting at all. And maybe the late round quarterback this year is more of an insurance policy on Justin Fields and Trey Lance, where you're taking one of those guys who yeah. might not start week one and then Kirk Cousins or Daniel Jones, or Ben Roethlisberger, or Derek Carr is somebody that you can pick up off the wire or take at the very end of the draft to ensure against actually having a starting quarterback for your fantasy team in week one. 
Yeah, exactly. And you can always play that by matchup and start, start, sort of increase your probability of hitting on those guys in those weeks where, you know, you're not getting Trey Lance and Justin Fields. But I really do think, I mean, I know the quarterback class was hyped and they, you know, there was a lot of, of high draft picks within the class, but I really think that this could be the year of the rookie quarterback in fantasy football. Yeah, it certainly seems like a good group. I, I hate every time I see, you know, the reminder that some of these guys are going to bust, I get angry because I don't want yeah. any of them to bust. <laughs> Outside of Zach Wilson, I'm fine with Zach Wilson busting just because he looks like he stepped out of a Disney movie to play for the Jets. But I, I, I really hope that Justin Fields does not bust. Yeah, yeah, say I'm with you, man. I, I need both Justin Fields and Trey Lance to, to be very, very good. So you talked about that top tier. You talked about Russell Wilson maybe being at the bottom of it. Where does that top tier break for you? Yeah. So, you know, I think that you're looking at Mahomes, Lamar, Kyler, uh, Josh Allen, and Dak, because they all have that insane upside. And, you know, you mentioned Dak isn't necessarily like the most mobile in terms of rushing production quarterback mm-hmm. uh, in the league. You know, Josh Allen's going to give you more points on the ground. Kyler Murray. Uh, I mean, people forget that Kyler Murray was on pace to basically break fantasy football before that, that injury last year. So, you know, Murray has that insane upside. Uh, and then obviously we know what Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes can do. And then you reach this point and, and look, ADP reflects this with, with Russell Wilson, where it's usually those top five guys. And then there's a gap, a slight gap to Russell Wilson. I think you can make the argument though, that Russell Wilson would still belong in that tier to some degree. I mean, he, he's not running like he used to necessarily. Um, but, but I do think he at least gives you that baseline uh, that a player like Dak could give maybe a little bit more than that. And then on top of that, I just think that there's really interesting upside with him this year, which I know we, we said, we, we, we've said over the last couple of years in, in, in hopes that, Seattle throws the ball a little bit more, but I'm interested in what Shane Waldron's going to do with this offense. Because if you look at how uh, the the Rams ran their offense over the last three years, and I know that Shane Waldron wasn't the one calling plays all the time. He did a little bit with Sean McVay, but um, you know, if you look at how the Rams called their offense in neutral game scripts, it was a lot more pass heavy than what's than what Seattle's done over the last three years with, with Brian Schottenheimer. And then, you know, there's been a lot of reports about their increased pace of play. I think all of that sort of combines to, you know, Russell Wilson's a player who is going to probably easily meet expectation where he's being drafted. We've seen him be a top 10 quarterback pretty, pretty uh, regularly. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not really concerned about that, but I also don't think you should be so hyper concerned in a season long league about the floor of the quarterback that you're drafting. You should just be shooting for ceiling, but I think that ceiling exists for Russell Wilson. I really do. Because if, if, if all of that comes together, uh, you know, with the new offensive coordinator there with Shane Waldron there, you know, the weapons obviously aren't terrible. You know, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, two of the best wide receivers in the league. And then they add Gerald Everett, you know, say they added Dwayne Eskridge, which we'll see if he can be healthy enough to, to find the field. But I mean, the weapons there are fine enough. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm still bullish enough on Russell Wilson. I think that he's a, a good value just because he can have that QB one overall ceiling. He has that QB one overall ceiling, but he's not necessarily being drafted in the same tier as those guys. But I think that you know, he's sort of on the fringe. And, and as a result of that, he just becomes a value. Yeah. And it, it's easier to bet on him because he gives us that perennial six plus percent touchdown rate that exactly any other quarterback that does that, you're like, well, his touchdowns are obviously coming down next season. And then Russell Wilson just ignores that. And it never happens no matter who the receivers are, who the coordinators are. It's kind of funny to, I don't know, read about and think about the Seattle offense heading into this season, knowing that last year, they were throwing it all over the place in the first half. And then Pete Carroll's like, it's fun, but Brian, can you please stop throwing the ball so much? And now we're like, yeah, but now they're really going to throw the ball a lot. Now yeah. that Brian Schottenheimer's gone, they brought in yeah. somebody else. Maybe Shane Waldron's just like, all right, listen, guys, we have to run 1,300 plays this year just so that Pete will allow <laughs> yeah, us to throw exactly. it 500 times. 
Exactly. And look, I'm all for it. I, <laughs> I'm all for something like that happening. But yeah, you know, you brought up the touchdown rate thing. And a lot of people look at the splits between the first half of last year and the second half of last year for Russell Wilson, for Tyler. I mean, even for DK Metcalf, right? right? DK Metcalf was not the same fantasy wide receiver during the second half of last year either. And volume definitely played a role. There's no doubt. The defense started playing a little bit better too. I think that played a role uh, in the game scripts that they saw and just like the fact that they could run the ball a little bit more. Um, but really, if you if you look at Russell Wilson's numbers, his touchdown rate uh, was like 10.2% during the first half of last season. Uh, and that number was never going to be sustained. I mean, that, that is literally breaking the touchdown rate record if you were to maintain that. And then over the second half of the year, uh, regression hit, but it hit too hard. It hit, it didn't go, he didn't revert back to his career average. He had like a 4.3% touchdown rate during the second half of last year. And I think a lot of people are sort of latching on to the second half of last year Seahawks and assuming that that's going to be the 2021 Seahawks. But it's sort of in the middle there. It's not, they're not going to be the front half of 2020. They're not going to be the back half of 2020, but they're going to be somewhere in the middle, which is another reason to be you know bullish on the passing attack, because I think the way they're being priced a little bit is more so based on what they did to finish the season. And not to mention that if you look at Russell Wilson and you say, yeah, but are we going to get first half Russell Wilson or second half Russell Wilson? Then you're completely ignoring all those other years that actually make the second half of last year, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the clear outlier in what he has yes. done for his career. Exactly. Exactly. So I didn't hear um, Justin Herbert come up. Is he in close to or a mistake in that top tier consideration? Yeah. So he's my QB seven and I actually took him in the, in the draft sharks invitational. Um, you know, I was at the, the one Oh one, I took him at the two, three turn. I don't mind Justin Herbert. It's just that where ADP sort of rests and, and where uh, I see Russell Wilson uh, in comparison to Herbert, I think Wilson's technically in a tier above right now. Uh, you know, we saw Herbert's numbers drop a little bit during the second half of last year, which was naturally going to happen because he was playing so out of his mind to start to start his career. Um, the, the one thing I will say about Herbert, though, is I don't think we saw the kind of mobility that he might be able to bring to the table through the rest of his career last year. Mm -hmm. And that's what scares me about being a little bit lower than the consensus on Justin Herbert this year, or maybe like at consensus and not necessarily saying like, go draft mm -hmm. Justin Herbert right now, because I do think that he has more mobility. I mean, he, he profiles more to have that like Josh Allen type mobility uh, than what he showed last year. He did find the end zone five times on the ground, but I, I do have a little bit of fear in, in saying that, you know, he's properly rated or maybe he's a little bit overrated. I have fear that he's going to end up coming out and running the ball a little bit more this year and being an even better fantasy asset. But I do think overall, if you look at just what how he scores points and uh, you know the touchdown rate numbers, et cetera, I think he belongs in the tier below where Russell Wilson is right now. Yeah, I agree. I don't want to be out on him. I don't want to say that it, he's going too early. I also don't right. want to be totally in. I agree that there's a, a bit of a gap between that top group and Justin Herbert. But I, I'm excited to see what comes. I like them as a prospect, and certainly right. he outperformed anything we could have hoped for last year. So let's move on to, to running back and wide receiver and kind of combine those two because we, they they really work together in terms of early draft planning in particular. So for the first round especially, does your lean between starting running back or wide receiver have a particular flashpoint where if you're picking at this point in the round, then you're really going in expecting to start receiver versus running back? Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of the way that I view drafts most years, honestly, is that if I'm not able to get uh, one of the true workhorse bell cow running backs at the top of drafts where, you know, we've seen the win rates for for that those draft uh, slots in general. Jack Miller uh, has, has done a lot of work on this, but, you know, we've seen win rates in the top six, five or six picks 
be substantially better than the win rates, you know, in the back half of drafts, depending on your draft slot. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, we see the true bell cow difference making running backs being drafted there. You know, I'm, I'm certainly someone who uh, goes with more of an anchor RB modified zero RB, whatever the heck you want to call it. RB approach. Don't, don't and, call it any of those things. Cause they're all going to make somebody angry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you can't, you can't win by talking about that approach, but yeah, you know, that's generally, you know, if I'm in a PPR league with starting three wide receivers and a flex spot, especially, um, you know, I'm going with, and I'm in the front half of the draft, I'm absolutely, you know, smashing one of those top running backs uh, and getting them as the anchor on my team. Um, and then just looking at historical hit rates and what we've seen. I mean, the running back dead zone that we talked about earlier, it's a very real thing. Now, I do think that in sharper drafts, like if you're doing a best ball draft or something right now, people are recognizing it more and more. So there's not really as much of an advantage uh, by just saying, oh, I'm avoiding all RB2 type running backs this season because they're dropping so much in drafts right now because everyone's recognizing, you know, what this running back dead zone is. But if you're talking more about home leagues or 99% of the drafts that are going on, you know, I, I do think that avoiding, you know, running backs in that fourth, fifth round uh, and even the third round to some degree, but more so, you know, if you're uh, in that fourth or fifth round, avoiding those running backs makes a lot of sense based on historical ADP data. There's not a, a really big hit rate there. I mean, I've done work that shows that round seven running backs have had similar hit rates to round four running backs through the years. So it's just not really worthwhile. And then what's really interesting when you sort of like overlay hit rates on top of a draft board is that where the running backs have bad hit rates, wide receivers have good hit rates and vice versa. So mm-hmm. realistically, when you get to like round uh, seven through 10, wide receiver hit rates are atrocious uh, and, and, but running back hit rates start to rebound a little bit and become stronger. Whereas the three rounds prior to that, it's all about the wide receiver position. So if you're in, you know, rounds four through six, uh, you know, go after those wide receivers, go after them hard. And, you know, it does play into the fact that, you know, in rounds two and three, then you can be a little bit looser with how you approach things. You can get an elite tight end. If one of them falls into the second uh, you know, you can, you can realistically go with a running back, running back start if you really want it. I mean, that's fine. I like a lot of the round two running backs this year, but you know, historical data definitely shows that going with a running back in the, in the first couple rounds, what have you, and then just going with wide receiver pretty heavily from like rounds three through six, and then going back to running back. That's generally been a pretty winning strategy through the years. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like Derek Henry is still in your PPR plans in that first half of round two as one of those workhorse running backs, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough, right? Like I just, it's just, yeah. Derek Henry is someone right now who, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time drafting at his ADP. Uh, Uh, but yeah, I mean, if he's in the second, I'll get him in the second. (laughs) The second. (laughs) Um, so in the, let's say the second half of round one, uh, are you leaning towards somebody like Austin Eckler, Aaron Jones, or is it, is that like Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams, Travis Kelsey territory? Yeah. So, you know, I would, I would, go with like a Kelsey or a Tyreek likely over those guys. I'm really high on Aaron Jones this year though. Uh, I I think Aaron Jones belongs in his own tier sort of after that Zeke tier, mostly because generally speaking, you want to avoid Green Bay Packers this year versus ADP just because, you know, especially in more casual leagues, because people are going to look at what they did last year and sort of just assume that that's going to be similar to what happens this year. But we know that regression is a very real thing. You know, the the Packers last year had 64 offensive touchdowns. That was the third most we've seen of any team since 2011. 
that number regresses. We've seen 28 or 29 uh, teams over the last decade with 50 or more touchdowns with next season data. It happened like eight times last year because offenses were insane last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But of those 29 teams, only three of them improved on their touchdown totals the following season. Um, And so the average drop in touchdowns was 11. So you're looking at Green Bay probably scoring more in the, if it were a 16 game season, you know, scoring more in the the 50 to 55 touchdown range instead of the Mm -hmm. 64 they had last year. But the one thing, and so that's, that would seem like it would be bad news for Aaron Jones. But the one thing with Aaron Jones is that despite how good that offense was last year, he was far worse at scoring touchdowns and finding the end zone because Aaron Rodgers was throwing the ball so much at the goal line. He had 30 goal line attempts. He had 20 goal line touchdowns. That was the most goal line touchdowns in NFL history. Um, and, and that was after a season where Aaron Jones, remember in 2019, Aaron Jones went absolutely nuts at the goal line and he was mm-hmm. scoring every, every time he saw the ball, essentially, he's basically averaging a touchdown per game. Um, and so I'm sort of bullish on Aaron Jones because of what we see mm-hmm. year to year with team offenses where, you know, last year, the pass to rush touchdown ratio for green Bay was three, meaning they threw three touchdowns for every one rushing touchdown that was third highest in the league. And that's usually a number that regresses back to like one and a half to two for teams. Right. Mm-hmm. And if that starts to happen and they still score a decent amount of touchdowns, those touchdowns are going to go to Aaron Jones, which we know he's been one of the best goal linebacks in the league, uh, you know, over the last couple of years. And we know that he's a lock to see, you know, in that 13 to 16% target share range. So I, I think Aaron Jones is a slam dunk pick. I think he's sort of in a tier ahead of like Eckler and Antonio Gibson and such, but yes, I'm still into those other guys too. I think there's a lot of good round two potential workhorse running backs this year. And so much of it has to do with what we saw from the 2020 running back draft class last year. Um, You know, I think that's the main reason we're seeing what we're seeing because last season we were drafting guys who, yes, we thought might have that kind of ceiling like Miles Sanders, um, but it wasn't as, it wasn't as like locked in and and felt as good as a lot Mm -hmm. of the round two running backs this year. So it's a, it's a good year. If you want to start running back, running back, I think that you really could. Or wide receiver running back for that matter. Or wide receiver running back. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that you like Aaron Jones because I have liked him for all the same reasons. And I did listen to the the show yours on the team touchdown regression, which is something that's kind of easy to overlook. When we look at individual players, you can say Aaron Rodgers is probably going to throw fewer touchdowns, but it's tougher to say, oh, look at how many touchdowns the Packers scored collectively. They're probably all going to score fewer touchdowns. I share your lack of concern with Aaron Jones, though, because there was also something from Rich Rebar where uh, Aaron Jones has not only been good around the goal line, but has also been extraordinarily good at scoring from distance. So wherever Green Bay is scoring from, Aaron Jones is going to be heavily involved. He'll get the ball plenty. Jamal Williams is gone. He's leaving likely some receptions. We'll see about A.J. Dillon as a receiver. So I definitely like Aaron Jones. And uh, the whole Green Bay situation and where you have to draft them now uh, it's kind of a reason in case anybody hasn't felt the urge to to dive into best ball to this point. It's a reason to dive into best ball because Aaron Jones, you could get at late round two, early round three, back in the spring, back in February when draft started. So I was getting lots of Aaron Jones then. Aaron Rodgers was sliding down ADP boards. Uh, Robert Tunyon debuted down in the middle of tight end two territory. So it's it's scary at this point, I think, to anybody to say you should be out on the Packers at cost because right. we saw what the Packers are capable of. This is a way that you can be in on the Packers, and now that they're all climbing back up because Aaron Rodgers is climbing, Tunyon's back inside the top 12, and Aaron, Aaron Jones is in first-round consideration. You get your shares of those guys, and now at this point you can read the market a little bit better and yeah. not feel like you have to be in to get a piece. 
Exactly. Exactly. And I think Aaron Jones is honestly the best piece to get in that offense this year, just based on, based on math, really. And, you know, I've had a lot of people uh, ask me, you know, I still have Devonte Adams as my wide receiver one from a, from a redraft ranking standpoint. And, and a lot of people have asked me, well, if, why do you have Devonte Adams as the wide receiver one? If you know, all of this regression is about to hit, which is true. You know, the passing offense is going to regress pretty heavily this year. Aaron Rodgers is the second highest touchdown rate of all time last year. Um, and so it's going to, you know, he's not going to maintain that. And actually if Aaron Rodgers, uh, this is in an article that I'm, I'm working on right now. If Aaron Rodgers had his career touchdown rate last year, instead of this outrageous one that he ended up having, he would have been like the QB 10 in points per game, QB 11 in points per game. So it's just the regression is going to hit that offense. But with Devonte Adams, he was just so, so far ahead of the field on a points per game basis and what he was doing, where even if there is regression, you can still feel good that he's going to see this massive target share in this offense. He's going to be utilized heavily in the red zone. And so I still feel fine drafting Devontae Adams because the floor ceiling combo is still good. It's just, I highly doubt his ceiling hits what we saw last season when he was healthy. Right. But when his ceiling comes down, the ceiling of Tyreek Hill is probably also coming down because you can look at Devontae Adams scoring 18 touchdowns and be like, that's coming down. But it's a little bit easier to miss that Tyreek Hill also scored 17 touchdowns (laughs) between receiving and rushing. So neither of those numbers is likely to repeat. Right. So we we got to round one, round two. Beyond that, there is that RB dead zone. Do you find any running backs? I I heard you kind of say round three a little bit less so more so round four round five for rb dead zone do you think that maybe the round three running backs are a little bit more attractive this year than other years because things are getting pushed down a little bit or at least some of the specific names getting pushed down david montgomery chris carson i guess miles sanders to a lesser degree yeah so you know and especially you know if like clyde edwards alaire ends up dropping which he did because there's people that hate him i'm totally cool with just going after him uh just given the offense that he's in and you know the, the the expectations for him were so high last year, and, and that that I think has so much to do with the way people view him this year. But his peripherals really weren't that bad, uh, you know. At the end of the day, and especially before they got Le'Veon Bell last year, his peripherals were pretty good. So like that that's probably the the last guy that I feel very confident in. But I still, you know, of that next group, I'm getting a little bit more worried about. You know, I, w- I wasn't really that high on Miles Sanders this offseason, but I'm getting even more worried about his receiving usage, just given a lot of the the stuff they're talking about. Um, and camp and whatnot. And, uh, you know, if you look at the actions they took as well, you know, they, they already had Boston Scott on that roster and then they draft Kenneth Gainwell, who we know is a good receiving back. And then it sounds like Boston Scott's going to be there too there. Um, and if he's going to be involved in that offense, we know what he does. And so that might limit Miles Sanders receiving work a little bit of all those guys though. I still think, you know, one guy I always gravitate towards is Chris Carson. He's just very reliable and he has a really underrated target share. You know, last season it was like a prorated target share of like 12 to 13% in that offense. Um, And so uh, if they utilize him in a similar way, very easy to see Chris Carson having that low end RB one type ceiling, realistic ceiling. Um, And so he's one of the few guys that I'm okay with, you know, sort of going after, but most of the other guys in that range, I'm not that, that interested in. Yeah. I'm I'm having a hard time not taking Chris Carson more often. He's one of those that I have to be like, no, Matt, you already have some investment in him. Take somebody else in round three this time. Yeah, totally. Um, So if you do start with one anchor running back, whether it's in round one or early round two, how late do you typically wait to get that next running back? I mean, I'm sure it depends a bit on who's there and how the, the, how the draft goes at other positions, but is there like a, a cutoff level? Um, not necessarily. I, I think a lot of it sort of comes down to how the draft's unfolding. And that's where like, like I love the flexibility of the strategy too, you know, because, you know, once you sort of get out of that, like 
JK Dobbins range and whatnot, where, you know, I'm, I'm not totally high on Dobbins for the receiving workload, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fine. I understand why people would like them, but you know, once you get out of that range, uh, you know, there's a couple guys that I'm interested, like, I really like Travis Etienne where he goes, um, just because partially because of the ambiguous RB one theory, but also, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, that that baseline is going to be there for ETN from a receiving standpoint. And, you know, we have to assume at least some rational coaching at some point. Uh, I do worry dramatically that Urban Meyer's not super sharp. Um, and so, you know, we, and I love James Robinson, you know, he's, I, I think James Robinson is a very, very solid running back. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he's sort of like a, a Chris Carson clone and comp. Um, but at the same time, you know, what we've seen historically from first round running backs is they see a lot of work on the ground year one. You know, they're they're usually seeing over 200 carries. They're usually seeing about an eight to nine percent target share. Um, and we know that ETN is going to have that target share. I mean, he should hit a double digit percentage target share this year. Um, and so there's a little bit of upside there. So I'm basically sort of feeling out the draft. I'll get that anchor running back, start going wide receiver a little bit. Maybe I'll get a second running back in the second round, uh, start going wide receiver for a little bit. And then sort of like pinpoint the guys that are sort of in the fringe dead zone or in the dead zone that I'm okay with. And I'll see where they end. If they start falling, then I'm going to feel very confident in drafting them. But if not, I'm just going to keep going wide receiver until I get to like sort of the pass catchers, uh, the, the, the satellite back pluses like a chase Edmonds or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a Michael Carter or something like that, where they're going to be fine. You know, I, you know, chase Edmonds is another guy who really fits that ambiguous RB one theory criteria mm-hmm. because James Connors also being drafted in those middle rounds. Um, and, and Chase Edmonds is the RB one by ADP, uh, you know, in, in uh, from, from the, the Cardinals. Um, but the, you know, the thing with Edmonds is even though I do think he's a good candidate to probably exceed ADP, it's hard to envision Chase Edmonds being like a league winning running back, mm-hmm. um, just because of the, of the way they're, they're likely to use him. Um, but I still think he's fine with some builds, you know, I don't think that literally every, especially in a 12 team, 10 team season long league, you know, that you need to, to absolutely get league winners at every single pick. Um, mm-hmm. And especially if you're going with that anchor RB approach where you have a Christian McCaffrey on your team that you know is going to produce week in and week out and give you those elite numbers, it's fine to get some production in that RB2 spot. And I think that a lot of those guys in that range, you know, provide that. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm going after a lot of those satellite back pluses. Mm-hmm. That's one of the challenges, I think, of moving from some of these best ball tournaments to season management mm-hmm. teams is like, all right, you don't have to get Odell yep. Beckham with every pick or he's either going to, you know, help you soar or crush your team. It's okay yep. to just take Jarvis Landry at some of these spots. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's definitely a predictability aspect to it. And, and look, there's there's other running backs in there. I think I took Rojo and I'm not, I've been a very big Ronald Jones hater uh, through the years. I think I took Rojo in the Draft Sharks Invitational and and you know, he's someone too that I'm cool with taking in, in sort of a, a modified zero RB build because mm-hmm. he's likely, especially the first couple of weeks of the season where they get, I think, Dallas and Atlanta. Uh, you know, we could see some positive game scripts, high scoring mm-hmm. games, touchdown p- uh, potential for him. Of course, Gio Bernard being there now might limit the receiving work and Leonard Fournette uh, has been more, was, was utilized more as a receiver last year when he was active. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're going after the RB1 by ADP on that team uh, and it's a good offense. Um, and you never know that they might end up just utilizing him more as a, a workhorse this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the whole never know thing, it's, it makes it so much comfier to start out the draft with that one running back that you can count on. Exactly. And know that there's just this one other spot where you can get several guys and yep. play around and see what happens. I, exactly. I no, no hatred here for the zero RB theory. It's obviously worked plenty of times and I will certainly employ it at times as well, but it, it's, it's pretty comfy to have the one running back, yep. even with Aaron Jones in that category for me to know that you can count on. 
Totally, totally. And it's a, it's a strategy that, you know, like I said, it's, it works every year, you know, it's a, it obviously depends on your scoring and, and whether or not you're able to, you know, if you have a full PPR league where you can flex a player and you have three wide receivers or something, it's a lot easier to go with a more modified zero RB approach. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, overall, just if you look at the data and again, overlay those hit rates over a draft board, uh, it really makes a lot of sense to go with that approach, especially if you're drafting in the top half of the uh, first round. Mm-hmm. Any uh, favorite targets, either at wide, running back or wide receiver, both, particularly as we get to, you know, round 10 plus some guys that you're really targeting for either upside or because you think that they're just underrated in terms of what they can offer right away. Yeah. You know, I mean, at, at running back, we've already talked about like Aaron Jones, Travis Etienne. Um, and then, you know, that, that next range of, of guys that was, or that, that sort of like three ranges from that, from then, but the, the range that we were just talking about with like the Rojo range, kind of intrigued by some of the guys in there. Like I think Zach Moss is a little bit interesting um, because again, I, I think that when we think about uh, range of outcomes for players uh, we have to do our best to not make too many assumptions. And mm-hmm. I think with like the, the Buffalo offense in general, we're, we're making the assumption that Josh Allen is their primary goal line back essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that doesn't have to necessarily be the case and uh, variants can hit in a certain way where Zach, I mean, Zach Moss had a lot of goal line rushes last year. Uh, but but variants can hit in a way where Moss ends up winning out there. And I'm just not a big fan of, of Devin Singletary, uh, you know, and his potential to be a workhorse. So, you know, a guy like Zach Moss is someone that I'm targeting a, a good bit uh, in that range. That same range has like A.J. Dillon, who I think is that like handcuff plus type back. You know, I don't I don't view A.J. Dillon the same way as I would a traditional handcuff per se. Like, I, I think I think Tony Pollard is more of a traditional handcuff than. AJ Dillon is. I mean, AJ Dillon's going to have a role in this offense. Whereas, you know, if you look at the RB ones in those teams, Aaron Jones hasn't been the same kind of workhorse throughout his career as Ezekiel Elliott has. Um, and and I don't know. I, I I think that that the Tony Pollard thing has been a lot. And look, he's fine. It's I'm mm-hmm. not like you know ripping the dude or anyone who likes him. But I think it's been sort of more of a of a fabrication and hype machine within the fantasy industry as opposed to how they're actually utilizing this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, but I, so I look at a guy like AJ Dillon, who has that obvious upside if something were to happen to Aaron Jones, uh, but is still capable and could still end up getting a bigger workload than we expect without Jamal Williams there. So he's another guy that, that you know, towards that, those, those double digit rounds, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty interested in. No, we're totally ripping people who like Tony Pollard. Don't, <laughs> okay. don't, don't check right. on that. <laughs> because I, I, I agree. He's going in the same range as A.J. Dillon, Latavius Murray, but A.J. Dillon's a different guy in that you can yep. start him even if Aaron Jones is healthy. And I, A.J. Dillon's going to stand out to me throughout this draft season as an example of needing to stay flexible in your plan and reading the market because AJ Dillon was a guy that I was completely off of early in draft season because he was climbing boards. He was going round six, round five, even especially when we didn't know where Aaron Jones was going to land. It was a no go on AJ Dillon there. Now I think people have kind of overreacted in the opposite direction saying, well, Aaron Jones is there. AJ Dillon's just his handcuff. I mean, we know AJ Dillon's probably not going to catch as many passes as Jamal Williams, but He's probably going to be a number two running back for a team that gives plenty of work to that number two running back. He's probably going to get the ball near the goal line some. And if Aaron Jones happens to go down, I mean, rocket ship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I think there's a good mix of like, you know, historically, again, RB twos on their own teams don't hit as well as, as RB ones in those middle rounds. And, 
handcuffs like traditional handcuffs have been absolute trash in terms of hit rate i mean there's not they're not good investments especially those higher end ones you know the, the the interesting thing with handcuffs is that the handcuffs that end up do hitting are the ones that we never expected uh would hit like mike davis last year and uh you know there was the the season with you know obviously james connor hit the one year that Le'Veon bell ended up holding out the, the entire season but even d'angelo williams when when he first broke out wasn't like a highly highly sought after handcuff um, and so of the handcuffs that have broken out, they haven't been the, the, the Tony Pollard type handcuffs. I mean, maybe, maybe it changes this year, who knows, but you know, historical ADP tells us to sort of avoid those kind of players. Yeah. I, no, thanks for me on somebody who has to have the starter ahead of him yeah. go down. Yeah. Um, anybody like, is there anybody else in particular that you're avoiding maybe one running back, one wide receiver? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned JK Dobbins earlier and it's, it's a really tough, uh, player, it's a tough player of Val in general, because everything you see, uh, on the field, you watch him and you want that player on your fantasy team. Uh, but I do think that you have to be as reasonable and logical with it as you can and realize that, you know, the Ravens have not only been the most run heavy team since Lamar Jackson took over, uh, but they're also not targeting their, they're like fourth lowest, uh, the, their best season over the last two years has been fourth lowest in running back target share. And so, they can say what they want in terms of getting these running backs involved as receivers. Um, but it's, it's going to take a really significant jump for that to, to make a, a super, super meaningful impact. So if you're in a PPR format, especially, I just think it's really tough to take Dobbins where he's going when there's other guys like the aforementioned Chris Carson that we talked about that to me in that kind of format have just as high, if not higher of a ceiling. Um, and so, and then obviously there's the Gus Edwards stuff too, where, where they clearly like Gus Edwards. There's a lot of, uh, beat reporters talking about how Gus Edwards could end up being the goal line. I mean, he saw a lot of goal line work last year, but could be the goal line guy for them, or could be a uh, uh, be used more as a receiver than we're expecting as well. Um, and so, you know, there's just a lot to be a little bit wary about with, with J.K. Dobbins, despite the fact that I mean, he's he's awesome. He's a very very good running back. Just the situation that he's in uh, isn't isn't super great at wide receiver. Um, you know, I would probably say one of the guys that I'm I'm very much avoiding is DJ Chark. Um, and it's tough because, you know, the, the data and the research that I looked at with middle round breakout wide receivers says to target the wide receiver ones on their teams, you know, like a Kenny Galladay or Odell Beckham. But a lot of those guys this year are just not super obvious to me. Like I'd rather just, if you're going to go with that criteria, I'd rather just throw a dart at Devonte Smith and see what happens and see if he can really translate. Um, mm-hmm. But with DJ Chark, the other thing too, is I did, I did research on, uh, how rookie quarterbacks impact their pass catchers. And what we've seen over the last decade is that rookie quarterbacks have really only supported one wide receiver to be relevant in fantasy football on their team uh, each season. Now, Trevor Lawrence's biggest comp is Andrew Luck and the one player who sort of came close to having more than one uh, relevant wide receiver on his team was Andrew Luck when he had Reggie Wayne uh, and T.Y. Hilton. And so, uh, you know, you can make that argument for sure. But I just don't know, you know, DJ Chark has been relatively inconsistent throughout his career so far. We've seen, you know, him him definitely boom and have some uh, and show show off his talent. Uh, but the fact that we have LaVisca Chenault right there, Marvin Jones right there, I don't know that we should be so confident that the one wide receiver that would hit if there is a wide receiver that hits in that Jacksonville offense with a rookie quarterback ends up being DJ Chark. And so just looking at it from that perspective, that's that's the main reason I'm out. 
first of all, JJ, I'd like to point out that these this is called fantasy football. It's not logical football competitions. So <laughs> you could please be a little bit less realistic and let us dream a little bit. I, J.K. Dobbins, I, I agree. The argument for him seems to be, from what I can tell, a Twitter video of him jumping to catch a pass. And I, I like <laughs> the player, but I mean, the, the situation just doesn't do it for me in terms of upside. So I, I agree on that. And yeah, Jacksonville just kind of, there are so many guys there that if you point to one guy and say, he's really got upside, I really like him. I can get along with all of them. I can agree with right. any one player that you want to point yep. at, but the presence of all of them coached by a dude who spent the last 15 years in college and has never been in the NFL and then drafted Travis Etienne to be Percy Harvin with his first move. Yeah. I, 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 it's just not a situation where I can plant a flag with anybody. I'll take some later pieces, but it's tough to trust anything in Jacksonville. It is. It, it really, really is. And it's the same reason why I think Travis Etienne is such a volatile, but has like a really mm-hmm. interesting ceiling, but such a volatile pick. You know, if he were going a round or two earlier, it'd be, he'd be in a void, right? Because of mm-hmm. that situation. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, all of the data that I talked about this offseason says to, you know, that the market is usually right with this kind of stuff. But with Jacksonville in particular, I have a really hard time thinking super rational about what you just said about Urban Meyer, but then also the fact that like their actions have not necessarily been the most logical, right? And the most rational. They went out in a rebuilding team and they spent a first round pick on a running back. And I love Travis Etienne, uh, but it just doesn't seem like a logical choice. And then all the Tim Tebow stuff. And it's just, there's, there's so much surrounding that team where you're like, are you guys really going to be rational with how you approach this team? And even if you want to believe that Travis Etienne was a rational pick, then you hear that it was kind of the fallback and they were like, Oh, I can't believe we missed Kadarius Tony. It's like, yes, well, yeah. now it's even less logical. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, and, and like all the reports of like, you know, in some of Urban Meyer's quotes, which I definitely don't think you, you should take to heart, but right. essentially saying that Travis Etienne is a satellite back and that they're taking a satellite back, you know, in the first round. Um, I think there's going to be more to it with him. Don't get me wrong. But again, there's a lot of volatility with the Jacksonville offense because I don't know how sharp this this front office and this coaching staff is. You also have to question a guy who had heart trouble as a college head coach moving to the NFL, which probably isn't a great job for yeah. your heart. Yeah. So since Jacksonville has chosen not to use any tight ends this year, let's go ahead and transition from the Jaguars to the tight end position to wrap this puppy up. How are you approaching tight end where this year we're seeing this clear top three or maybe, you know, maybe it's one and two and then three and then everybody else. But however you divide that top, how are you approaching tight end early in your draft? I feel like a tight end this year. I have never seen a more efficient like tight end market from an ADP perspective in my entire career analyzing this stuff. Like I, I'm totally in like like I, I did a, a, an article and podcast on players that I'm targeting this year. I couldn't find a tight end that was just so glaringly obvious that I absolutely am in love with because I think that as you move through the draft, you can logically see why you would be taking each player. You know, I'm looking mm-hmm. at Travis Kelsey and, and Darren Waller. They're priced pretty appropriately. It makes sense where they're going. And then, uh, you know, I, I will say when you get to, this is one of those, those takes where, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of fading a very good player and you know that it's just going to bite you at the end of the season. But, uh, when it comes to George Kittle, obviously a freak, obviously an incredibly good tight end and a productive tight end. My fear with Kittle is a lot of the stuff that I researched this off season on again, what happens to pass catchers, uh, when they have uh, rookie quarterbacks throwing them the ball. So Trey Lance, assuming Trey Lance starts the majority of the season, 
Uh, and then on top of that, what happens when a quarterback is mobile? Um, and those two things combined and then combined with the fact that San Francisco has the easiest strength of schedule when looking at win totals. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're likely going to be a pretty run heavy offense for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and I just don't know if the volume is going to be as strong for Kittle because they have good weapons elsewhere. You know, I'm a, I'm definitely a firm believer that a target share floor exists for any elite player. Like George Kittle is going to see, I'm not saying that George Kittle should not be the tight end three. None, none of that. I mean, he's, he's a freak. I'm mostly saying, you know, to your point that I do see a clear top two tight ends with Darren Waller and Travis Kelsey. And I think there's a decent enough gap to, to George Kittle to where I'm not getting a lot of George Kittle this year. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's mostly because of, those things and Brandon Ayuk being a good wide receiver and Debo Samuel still going to get his. And if they're all healthy, you know, that target share ceiling might not be as strong as what we're going to see from like a Kelsey or, or a Waller. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm going after those top two guys kind of fading George Kittle, but I don't want to say I'm a total fade because I know how good he is. And I know that he still drops in some drafts. And then again, like the, the market is just very, very efficient. I have Kyle mm-hmm. Pitts at tight end four. I have Andrews and Hawkinson right there as well. Um, and I, you know, if you look at historical data and I, I talked about this on the breakout tight end show, uh, but, but, uh, tight ends who are the top pass catchers drafted on their team, really good hit rates. And that's what we're seeing. Mark Andrews by far the top Ravens pass catcher by ADP. And then TJ Hawkinson by far, by far, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the highest pass catcher being drafted from Detroit. Um, so unless you count Deandre Swift in that group. Yeah, unless you count DeAndre Swift in that group, of course. After those guys, though, you know, you get those middle round tight ends. I will say I'm mostly fading the guys after the top six, where you get into like Higby, Logan Thomas, uh, the you know Dallas Goddard. You know, Zach Ertz is going to be an Eagle evidently, and so that's a, still a little bit frightening, even though he's he's basically like this era's Jason Witten at this point. Hey, he's um, so scared it turned his hair white. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you, that group, that cluster, which again, historically that cluster in those rounds typically don't hit at a very high rate. And I think we're seeing that again this year, but then in the late rounds, once you get to like Irv Smith and uh, you know, even Adam Troutman at this point, Gerald Everett, I mean, there's a lot of guys that I like late a tight end and Johnny Smith um, you know, there's guys and I'm, I'm fine targeting. There's just not one that I'm like, so, so in love with that. I absolutely have to target in every single league. I think it's fine to sort of diversify yourself a little bit in those late rounds. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of good to not have one to be locked yeah. in on. Evan Ingram is one that I, I like more mm-hmm. than others going around him just because of the athletic profile yep. and, and what he has gotten target share wise when he's been healthy, but it, it's good to, it's comfortable to me to not be locked in on one guy so that I don't have to say, well, I have to take him this round. Cause he's never making it back to me. It, you know, it's, there are these five and if I get one, I'll be okay with it. But I agree. Once you get past those top six, it's really hard to see a whole lot of difference in either ceiling or floor between like yeah. Dallas Goddard and Evan Ingram. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's, yeah, exactly. I, I would totally agree. And, and, you know, typically again, I wouldn't be going after like fifth round tight ends, like a, you know, an Andrews or a Hawkinson, but there's a lot of data to suggest that they're in a pretty good spot to, to, to beat ADP and to, you know, have a chance to not necessarily compete with like a Waller or Kelsey, but, you know, exceed expectation to a point where they're going to be valuable for your fantasy team. Um, you know, TJ Hawkinson, it's a small sample size, but TJ Hawkinson uh, is the the fifth tight end since 2011, according to the ADP data that I work with, who is the top pass catcher from his own team without a wide receiver or tight end being drafted in the single digit rounds with him. So yes, DeAndre Swift is there, but we don't have any other wide receiver or tight end even close to TJ Hawkinson. 
three of the four before him, one of them was Darren Waller last year, three of the four before him did very, very well in terms of exceeding mm-hmm. ADP expectations. So I think that, you know, even the, even though the offense isn't very strong, I get it. I understand all that. There's a lot pointing up for TJ Hawkinson this year and through right. the months, you know, back in April, if you asked me about him, I'd say, yeah, he's fine, whatever. He'll probably just like meet expectation. He's going to get a lot of volume, all that. But I, I, I do think that he's a really strong pick at this point. Is there a certain point in the year, as you talk about back in April, is there a certain point in the year where you've dug into your research for the coming season and you're like, okay, this is actually clearing my view for the year and it's not just my reaction to what just happened? Yeah, I feel like a lot of it happens like late May for me. Uh, And Mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm so into rookies and so uh, focused on the NFL draft that I'm not necessarily thinking about those higher level strategies with fantasy and the game theory stuff. But then mm-hmm. the individual veteran, you know, the veterans that are already in the NFL, I haven't focused as much on them. You know, I do my projections in like early mid April. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like all of those like stronger takes or like really thinking about these guys doesn't really occur until like mid to late May. So, you know, I'm, I'm an analyst that's cool with changing my opinion, you know, even in the same summer that I'm in, I mean, like Chase Edmonds, I didn't want anything, any part of back in, in March and April. I even sold him in some dynasty leagues. And now I'm like, yeah, I don't actually mind Chase Edmonds that much. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's just natural whenever you sort of uncover things, and you start to look at things a little bit differently because with new information, you should be able to change your takes. Um, before we let you go, I, I know that you're very process driven and a little bit less you know, tied to certain players. Are there you know one or two guys this year that just kind of like my process is not telling me to take these guys but i just i just have this feeling yeah the number one guy is absolutely brian edwards it's not even it's it's brian edwards like i logically like every piece of data that i look at um says that there's a low probability chance that brian edwards hits uh you know it, it, generally speaking for a wide receiver to to do well have multiple top 24 top 12 seasons throughout his career uh he generally has a pretty good rookie season um, it's just, just how it goes. It's not shocking, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're good at football, you're probably gonna be good at football always. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's the same, it's the same idea as what we see with like college production, right? Like if they're producing early on in college, uh, at a young age, it's because they're good at football. And so that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a signal, right? Uh, and so Brian Edwards, great college profile. I really liked him coming out. Uh, thought he could be an alpha in the league. And then we saw what he did last year, which was not a lot despite that injury. Um, and so there's just a lot of things pointing to him not necessarily being, you know, he's not even the first wide receiver being drafted from his team right now because of Henry Ruggs. Uh, there's just a lot pointing against him, but I just can't quit him. And then, and then the John Gruden quotes come out where, where they're, <laughs> they're, they're comparing him to Terrell Owens. I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's go. I'm right. all in. Brian Edwards, baby. Yeah. If your coach, if your coach who has been around a long time is calling you Terrell Owens and every <laughs> other wide receiver on your team looks like Todd Pinkston, I think that it's yeah, okay yeah. to go out on a limb. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian Edwards is probably, probably that dude for me this year. Nice. I like it. He is at late round QB on Twitter. He is the editor in chief at FanDuel and number fire. He is the pilot of the late round QB podcast, which you're probably already listening to, but if you're not, I mean, why not? JJ, thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, man. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Head over to draftsharks.com. Now check out our full rankings, a fresh list of sleepers that just hit the site this morning 
and the second of our big three articles for the year, the breakout player landed on the site Monday, become a DS insider, check all that out. Um, even if you're not a DS insider though, you can join our free discord. You can find the invite link for that on draft sharks, Twitter, recent posts for our YouTube channel or on any of the podcast feeds for JJ Zacharyson and the entire draft sharks crew. I'm Matt Shaft saying thanks so much for swimming with us.